And today we're reading two different portions of scripture. Uh, the first is Genesis 41, 9 through 16. And then the second is Daniel 2, 24 through 30. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. The young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I, restored, I was restored to my office, and the bank baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And we're moving on to Daniel 2. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon, bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar that what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than, any, than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You may be seated. Good evening. just talking about how happy I am to be, uh, that we are in Daniel. I, I absolutely love this book. I love 
all the different components. It's it's unique. It's um, uh, it's good, and I and I think that it's it is really timely, and I'm I'm really happy that we're we're spending time here in Daniel. Uh, hopefully, you guys are also being blessed. I know we haven't gotten that far into it, but it's been good so far. At least, at least I think so. Uh, tonight we are going to be continuing on in chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And it used to be when I'd say that I'd hear pages. I don't hear pages anymore, but. If you have, if you have a Bible, go for it. Um, Daniel chapter two, uh, chapter one is a nice sort of encapsulated story, and you can kind of tell that by verse twenty-one, where it says, "And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus." You could almost say the end, and we could move on, really. But what we get here in chapter two is sort of a continuation. We get more stories. Um, about Daniel's time there in, uh, in Babylon. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 2, but only the first half. So some of you will leave not really satisfied. Nice little cliffhanger. Uh, we're going to take chapter 2 in two parts. And I think uh, as we go through here, you can kind of see uh, why. We're going to really emphasize this first part here and some of the lessons that we, we get there. The second half of Daniel tends to suck all the air out of the room, so we will deal with that on its own next week. But tonight what we're looking at, verses 1 through 30, uh, we will see four principal interactions. And we're going to look at each one of these. We're going to walk through this, and we're going to highlight a few things. It's, I think it's a lot of fun to teach through, to preach through narrative. Narrative is, I think, not just exciting because you get a story and usually there's a, there's a you know, stories are great. They convey uh, ideas, big ideas, uh, but also it's something that we can remember. We're sort of geared to remember stories, to remember narratives. And so if we can include some of these these things in the story, as we remember the story, we can remember some of these really important things that we're going to pull out of the text here. So we're going to look at four different sections. We're going to start in this first one here. That's a good place to start in the first one. Uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 is where we will begin. So the principal characters, or the principal interaction, I should say, is going to be between two they're not both groups, an individual and, and a group. And the first is the representative of the people. So this is the king, right? And he's going to, in this part of the story, he will represent sort of the, that idea as the, the peoples. When I say the peoples, that's the nations, that's different than who we'd say Daniel or Israel would represent. So we're going to talk about the peoples, the peoples of the world, if you want to put it that way sort of that representative person, and his interaction with, I'm going to say, the priesthood of the gods. And we'll see who those individuals are, or who those groups are in just a moment. So look at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Now, kind of the idea here is that he's having a continual sort of dream sort of state. It's something, it's not just a one shot, he had this one dream and it troubled him. It seems to be something that's continuing to happen. 
And so we don't know if he's just having exactly the same dream or it's a dream and then the dread of the dream or how that works. There's even some who would say, translate this, as like he's almost walking in a daze because of this dream that he has. So it's something that's really impactful. Um, I don't know, have, have you, anyone had just a really weird dream that you think about? I mean, how many of you, though, have then been, you know, plagued by this dream for days or weeks? You know, that's sort of what we see here, right? So maybe if you've had that experience, you can kind of understand. What Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing here is something that's a little bit more, and we'll see that here just in a second. Uh, it also says here it's in his second year. This is very early on in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, as far as how that works. So when he's actually in charge. It says his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Verse 2, then the king commanded that the magicians... The enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to the king to tell the king his dreams. This, this here, we, we've got several groups that are mentioned here. So we've got magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. And depending on the version that you're looking at, you may have slightly different words, but I think we could probably say they're all pretty much the same idea, Right? Now, some of these, we, we, we might have a different idea of what these would be as far as how our culture looks at them. We might say, this, is, this might be a fun thing. The king brings all these kind of guys up. And uh, as far as how it's looked at in, in Babylon at that time, these are obviously the, the high-level sort of kind of the priestly type of class. These are the ones that are expected to have wisdom and, and insight that's why a good way to kind of think of it, these are kind of, he's kind of calling the priests to himself. Now, if you look at these different words here, we could actually spend some time looking at, at this, but it really means what it, what it says here. Magicians, now I'd say probably not like David, David Copperfield, kind of illusionist, kind of sleight of hand kind of thing. That's not really what we're, what we're talking about. But these magicians, sorcerers, you might even see astrologers in there, that, that kind of idea. We, we have to remember that at that time, this wouldn't have been uncommon because the government, which Nebuchadnezzar represents, and these groups, it would be normal for them to discuss matters of state. This is just part of how the government works, and that feels very odd to us. It most likely would not be odd for them to have magical workings, to have invocations, uh, attempts to contact spirits or to do some sort of magical work in the midst of deciding something in regards to the state. This was normal. This is a part of how government was done at the time. So he calls these up here. What's interesting is you have magicians, Enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Who are these Chaldeans? Because that's a people group. So he just decides to, these are, these are good guys, we're going to have them in here. Uh, it's, it's not just that. The Chaldeans brought, well, it's, it could be one of two things. Nebuchadnezzar and his father, they came from this group, the Chaldeans. And there's a certain area and a certain people group within sort of the Babylonian central type of empire, if you want to think of it that way. But the Chaldeans, just highlighting that group, this is a very ancient group 
This is a very ancient people. The fact that the Chaldeans are called up in the midst of these most likely has, has to do with these are the magicians. They're kind of really current on these different areas, right? And then the enchanters and the sorcerers. The Chaldeans, however, are sort of the old school guys. These are the ones that have some of the old knowledge. And so they're included there as well. And they probably found some kind of favor with Nebuchadnezzar since his family was from that area. The Chaldeans kind of carry on throughout this time to kind of speak for and represent that group. Now, it's not just magic that they do, but including some of those things. So in some of your translations, you might say astrologers. These, these guys were, were the scientists of their day. And that, in fact, we kind of benefit from some of the things that they figured out and they discovered. Uh, for instance, this, uh, if you look at your watch, not a digital one, but just a, you know, a regular watch, right? If you look at that, it's oriented according to the number 60, right? So you have 60 minutes and we have 60 seconds and you know how time works. Um, but um, that's the group. We're talking generations, centuries before this using the movements of the moons of Jupiter, figured out that there are 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day. Isn't that crazy to think about? That they actually calculated this out, and this is something that we continue to use today, purely from observation, purely from math, figured out how these things work together. So in all that, and I say that because sometimes we say these groups, they're magicians and they're sorcerers, and we kind of disregard them. But understand, these were the learned men of the day, okay? That's, that's really kind of the point they want to point out. And, and also, this is the group that Daniel was being trained to be a part of, okay? So his learning would have been in that same sort of grouping, that sort of area. So the king receives something very special, this vision, and it's very troubling, so he calls them up. What ends up happening here is something that they probably did not expect. It says that the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, pause for a second, the book here transitions and the language that's used is Aramaic. That's really all that's indicated here. So a large chunk of Daniel is now going to be in a different language than the beginning. That's all that really means. It says, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream. It will show the interpretation. This was something that was normal. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll come and we'll, we'll interpret your dream. What's your dream? No, not this time. This is something special. This is something significant. I need to really know. I need to know that this is real. I need to know that this interpretation is correct. So he essentially challenges them. He says, if you really are who you say you are, if you really can connect with the spirits or the gods or however that looks, whatever that is, whatever that is, you tell me what my dream is or I'm not going to believe you can do what you say. That's essentially what the king says. Now, What's so amazing about this is that this isn't just 
hey, just, just show me that you can do what you do. Like we talked about before, it was very common for these men, for this group to be brought in to help in matters of state. He's essentially saying, you need to prove to me that you can actually do what you do with the authority that you say you have or you're done for. This wasn't just you're going to lose your job. If you read through here, it says, I'm actually going to tear you limb from limb and your houses are going to be a dump. So there's impact to their families also. Called them out. Is this real? Are you really? Now, one thing that this also shows, which is going to be displayed later on in Daniel, is the arrogance and the pride that Nebuchadnezzar has. How dare he challenge the system? The system says these guys show up and they tell you these things. You just kind of just go with it. But he does this a couple of times. Verses 4 and 7, the practitioners here, they show up and they say, yeah, we can do this, but you have to tell us what the dream is. We can't really do our thing if we don't know what thing we're supposed to talk to you about and interpret. And twice the king says, no. What I love is the second time where he says, you're just stalling for time. Now, <laughs> this could have taken place over a short period of time, right? So then they left and then they came back. Like that, that could have been happening either way. Nebuchadnezzar is calling them out. Can you really do what you say you can do? So think about this in a greater context. What he's really saying is, you say that you speak for the divine. Do you really? This dream that Nebuchadnezzar had impacted him in such a way that he says, I have to know. I have to know for sure what this is and what it means. Tell me. Or you're out. And this was the test that he gave them. You tell me what the dream is or I'm not going to believe you. I won't believe that you have actual true insight in these matters. Now, if you take this in, the, in, in sort of how the story is built up or represented, those in the nations are actually challenging what is true, right? The king, as a sort of representative of the nations, is calling on these who say they speak for the gods, for the spirits, and says, is what you say true? Well, again, they, they can't answer him. They can't really tell him. And so, verses 10 and 11, verses 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So from their own mouths, they say, this is impossible. We can't do it. You say, well, you could try. If they tried and they're wrong, they were dead anyway. So he says, no one can do it. And that is the, the beautiful sort of introduction to this. They set the parameters. There is no human on earth who can do this because they would have to be able to talk to the gods. 
and the gods aren't here in the flesh. So, there you go. And that was the answer that they gave. Next section, next part. Verses 12 through 16, this other interaction, this interaction is between, we're gonna, I'm going to call Daniel the covenant man. Sounds like a superhero. The covenant man. Basically meaning he's, he's the one who has that relationship with Yahweh. He's adhering to the covenant. That's how we're going to separate him out from the, these other, we'll call them pretenders. He is this covenant man. So the covenant man speaks with his neighbor, the neighbors. All right? Let's look at verses 12 here, verse 12 and 13. It says, because of this, the king was angry, very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men, uh, um, I'm sorry, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Well, this is what's kind of interesting. Daniel was enough of a wise man to be included to be killed, but not enough of a wise man to be present to actually stand before the king. That's kind of an interesting thing. So what you probably had is you had, these were the, the leaders of these groups. So all these people who had no chance were just going to be rounded up and killed. And by consequence, their families as well. The decree went out, and Daniel's companions were amongst that group. So look at verse 14 here. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok. Prudence and discretion. So the reason kind of titled this, The Covenant Man Talks With His Neighbors, this character, Ariok, he's, he's named quite a few times. Like he's, a, he's a part of this story. He's, he's basically relaying this. Daniel asks him and talks to him. Ariok talks to Daniel like someone that they know each other. They respect each other, at least to, to a certain extent. So this goes out, hey, all the, all the wise men are going to be destroyed. Daniel seeks more understanding and says, what, what is this? What's going on? And Ariok essentially gives him all the details. So what you have here, this is what's interesting, is you have the covenant man, right? This, this man who follows after Yahweh, who's talking to his neighbors, and there's enough of a relationship here to where there's enough mutual trust for him to really tell him what's going on. He gets sort of the inside um, sort of story to what's happening. And there's enough of a relationship there to, for him to say, just, just tell him to wait. Just hold off. We don't know if Ariok actually is a follower of Yahweh at this point. But the way he interacts, he at the very least trusts Daniel. And this could have been based on what happened in chapter 1. Where Daniel says, no, we're not going to eat the king's food. We're going to eat this instead. We're going to need vegetables and water. Maybe that story had circulated out enough for them to say something about Daniel's different. They respected him in a way that they didn't necessarily respect some of the others. Because It sounds like this is kind of a unique relationship that he has. And what I would put forth is, this is the sort of an example of how the one who does worship Yahweh, how that interaction is happening. Because notice what he says. He, he talks to him with prudence, right? He's, he's nice. 
He doesn't threaten. He's not angry. It says he did. And I would say that this is probably a really great example of what it means to be gentle. We don't have a lot of great examples of those sorts of things. But with something on the, on the line like your life, your livelihood, your house, you'd think that people would be pretty upset. But it sounds like Daniel was really very controlled and, and talked in such a way that Arach trusted him and said, yeah, I'm going to, he, he told him the rest of the story. I think this is a great example of what it means to be in real relationship with our neighbors, the people around us. It was pretty clear, and we'll see in just a second how clear it was, that Daniel, while he was trained and it seemed like him and his friends were kind of better than everybody else at all the things they were taught, they weren't really included in those groups. Later on, they're identified as these men of Judah, these exiles from Judah, right? So they've gone through some of, at least some of the training, if they haven't finished, but they're still kind of regarded as these exiles from Judah. And yet, Daniel has this relationship with this man. Say, so this, is, this is a great example of having respect for other people, to speaking properly, not being harsh, not kind of setting Daniel apart from a lot of those others. Granted, we don't have the other conversations they were having, but I think we can at least extrapolate that. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> he declared to Arioch, to the captain, why is this decree so urgent? Why, why are they rushing to kill all of, the, all of these guys? Why? And he basically puts in this request, hey, give us some time and we'll see what we can do. And Arioch actually goes and he relays this information. We don't know any of those details, but it was enough for the king to say, okay, I'll wait. Which is kind of amazing. How angry, how passionate the king has been regarding this to then say, okay, I'll, we'll wait. We'll wait. I think this might be one of those examples of this relationship that he had. All right, third interaction that we'll have here, right? So verses 17 through 24, the covenant men, because now it's more than Daniel, it's Daniel and his, his friends, the covenant men and their God, Yahweh. So we'll see this interaction. We'll see what happens here. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions. We'll pause there for a second. We don't use Babylonian names here. Still using Hebrew names. I know that the Babylonian names are just impounded into our minds to, to such a degree that probably most of us couldn't tell you, you know, what their names actually were before that. But in this chapter, they're still called by their Hebrew names. Even though this section is in Aramaic, which tells you something. They're still kind of set apart it's still a matter of them being separated out. Another way to say that is they are living their lives in a holy manner. Daniel and his friends are still referred to with these other names. He goes to his companions. He told them to seek mercy from, God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
So this big matter, this is a pretty big deal. He goes to his friends and say, we need to pray. We need to pray that God is, is merciful and that he helps us. Now, before we got into our text today, one of the passages that um, I asked to be read was a passage from Genesis where Joseph interacts with Pharaoh. And I mean, it's pretty close to the same kind of story here. And I can't help but feel like Daniel and his friends are recalling that story, that, for them, part of their history, saying, God, you're going to have to do this. So if we went to the account with Joseph, Joseph from even a young age, right? he's talking to his brothers, he's interpreting dreams, he's doing this all the time. He does it when he's in prison, and so then when he stands before Pharaoh, we're pretty confident. Yeah, he's going to go ahead and he's going to do it. No problem. We don't have any indication here that Daniel does this regularly, that this is a gift. We do have in chapter 1 where it says that he and his friends were gifted in those things, but we don't know if that was the same thing that all of the other magicians were trained in because there's something different. What's the difference between that account with Joseph and this account? Daniel's not told the dream. This is going to have to be true true insight beyond any kind of wisdom that's accessible to them. It has to be Yahweh who does this. But drawing upon that, that story, can God interpret these dreams? Absolutely. Can God give them the insight to understand what it is without hearing it from Nebuchadnezzar? Absolutely. So you can see Daniel and his friends they go and they pray. Now, now for us, I'd say, <clears throat> this is probably one of those things that we could learn a lot from. Granted, this was a life and death situation, so I think this would probably be something that we would go to the Lord in prayer in, obviously. But I wonder sometimes how often there are things that are important. It might be life and death for someone else. It might be something that's really pivotal, really important. How often do we say, I'm involved in something that's really difficult. Can we all get together and pray? How often do we do that? How often is that our, pra- that our practice? That we would go to the Lord and say, this is really important. We need to pray about it. God needs to give us this answer. And I wonder if sometimes in our sanctification, in the Lord making us like his son, we want to show God that we can do it. Just, hey, the Spirit's here, we, we can just do it. And instead, what the Lord wants to do is to show us that we can't. The Lord brings things into our lives that we can't really do. We can't do this thing. So that we will go and pray, that we will take this to someone else. One thing that kept coming up in my mind as I was reading through this is the concept that Paul brings up in his letters where he says, you praying for me, you're participating in the gospel. They're far away. They're not even together. And they're praying for him. And Paul says, you're participating in the gospel. And sometimes I think we forget that. That prayer actually is impactful. Prayer makes a difference. And, and sometimes, you know, and I, don't, I don't know 
all the things that you read or listen to or whatever throughout the week, but I do know that there are a lot of people who say, we need a revival, and I think every generation they say, we need a revival. But there are a lot of people who say, we, we need to see a revival. Well, every single revival that's ever happened has happened in response to fervent prayer. Like the Lord shows up when we all get together and seriously ask him to. And I wonder if sometimes we, we, we kind of save up those times for something that's, you know, really important. I don't know, fill in the blank with what's really important. But the more I think that we would involve the Lord in those, in those things earlier and smaller, how amazing we would see the Lord actually work in some of these things in our own lives. So anyway, that was a, that was a side mission. That was a rabbit trail, and we're back. What's amazing here, and I, I don't think this surprises us in reading it in the Bible, but verse 19, it says the mystery was revealed. God actually did what they asked him to do. Look at that. Verse 19, and the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, and we'll read that in just a second, but just think about that. God showed up. God did it. How cool is that? How many of us were surprised? God did it. I know we've probably heard the story many, many times. But sometimes I think we treat it like, well, of course God would listen to Daniel. You know, Daniel's, you know, Daniel. It's him. It's, he's going to do it. Now, how often have we prayed together for something with such faith and confidence? The Lord shows up and then we're just greatly surprised. I had no idea God was actually going to do this thing. I'd say if we're just so greatly surprised that God showed up, we probably didn't pray with the amount of faith that we thought. And that sounds weird to say. But how often do we pray, but kind of in the back of our minds, we have that, yeah, but God, if you don't, it's okay. Have <laughs> you ever prayed that? God, if you don't, you know, and I think we, we kind of add that line. You know, if it's your will, though, Lord, and so if you don't, it's okay. Do we do have you, I, I do that. I do that. You know, if it's, but it's not, if it's not your will, then that's okay. Anyone else done that? Am I all by myself? Okay, thank you. Even if you just raise your hand to make you feel better, you may feel better. Um, this was obviously a big deal, right? All these different people, their lives are on the line. But I think for us, what is it for us? It's the salvation of our neighbor or our family where we come to, how often do we say, I'm just real, I just really feel this thing, we just need to get together, we need to pray. Maybe that's something we need to do more of. Maybe it's something that we need to make not weird. It's not weird for you to say, can I come over and pray with you tonight? When, when, when I went off work, like I just really need to, to pray about this thing and I need to pray with someone else about it. I think sometimes we're really guarded about the things that God is doing and you know, that way if God doesn't answer our prayer, no one else knows and that's okay. I don't know, whatever. Whatever the reason is that we give, I think the more we would do this together, the more we would see the benefit. 
the more we'd be able to share on Sunday the things that God has done this week. And hey, we prayed together and this thing happened. It was so cool. This is amazing. This thing happened. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Here's what I find so cool about this. Daniel, if you've read the other part of chapter 2, which we won't actually get into the dream tonight, next week. Daniel's response is not just to the fact that God revealed it, but it's also in response to the actual dream. Because what Daniel prays here, it's like, you lift up kings, right? What does he say in verse uh, 21 here? He removes kings and sets up kings. That is specifically the message of the dream. So Daniel is also praising God for that information. He's given this insight. He understands and he's responding in that way. Verse 24, he therefore, I'm sorry, therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. Remember, that's, that's still happening. Uh, he went and he said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. All right, so now we get to the last interaction that we're going to talk about today. Verses 25 through 30, the neighbor, the covenant man, and this, this representative of the nations. So this is this fourth interaction. And, and actually, this interaction is going to carry through the rest of the chapter. We're just going to kind of stop it abruptly to leave a cliffhanger so that you'll come back next week. Let's look at verse 25. And Ariak brought Daniel before the king in haste. And said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah, remember we talked about that, they're still kind of separated out, from the exiles of Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now, how much does this man trust Daniel? Probably a lot, right? Hey, king, that thing you told me to do, I'm not going to do it right now. Well, pause for just a second. Hold on. I found a guy who's actually going to interpret the dream. Go ahead. That's a lot. (laughs) He put a lot of faith in who Daniel was, who he said he was, who he said his God was, and who his friends attested to. That's a lot of faith that this man brought out. And I cannot help but feel as though this is based on a relationship that he has with them. Pretty neat. Anyway, I think he gets left out of this. So anyway, we'll give him his, his moment. There you go. Thank you, Ariok. Um, so he brings him there. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make it known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no. 
I wish it ended there. He said, nope, I can't. Uh, he said, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can give, I'm sorry, can show the king the mystery the king has asked. Again, repeating what all of those other men had said. The answer, king, is no. No human can do that. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Remember what the other groups had said? You, you, have to, you have to talk to the gods to get that kind of an answer. And we can't do that. What Daniel says is, yeah, they're, they're totally right. No one can do that, but there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. He reveals mysteries. He's made known. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and your visions of your head when you lay your head down. He's, uh, it says to you, O king, as you lay in the bed and come thoughts of what would be after this, he has revealed, I'm sorry, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. Verse 30, but as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So again, he reiterates, there's no human who can do this. I just want to make this clear, that this is because of a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, which is exactly what Joseph did in that sense. He said, yeah, there's, there's a God that has revealed this to me. All right, so, so Daniel gives credit to the Lord. What's also amazing, we talked about in the last interaction when Daniel had received this, the message, the message that Daniel receives, God is the one who puts kings in place and also deposes them. So whatever message Daniel gets has to be an encouraging one. So he says, hey, king, I'm going I'm to tell you what it is. See, he understood what the message was, which we will get into next week. But the idea and the concept is, is that God is king over the nations. God is the one who lifts up kings, brings them down. He is still in control. And so even though this message was for Nebuchadnezzar, for Daniel, this was a message that brought hope. That's right. God is the one who brings up kings and takes them back down. This, this was hope. For his people, this was help. This was hope for the nation that he has, and he gets to deliver it to Nebuchadnezzar. And the only reason why Nebuchadnezzar will receive this is because God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream initially. So Nebuchadnezzar has to sit there and has to listen to how the God of heaven is really king of the universe. And that is a pretty cool thing. Kind of another thought here. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. Depending on how you take some of the later passages, Nebuchadnezzar here, we talked about it in the beginning here, he, he's, he's willing to destroy the system. He's willing to tear from limb to limb all of the magicians and sorcerers and 
all the Chaldeans, to know what is true. He wants to know. He's troubled by this message. He wants to know what is true. In a very kind of a neat way, Daniel gets to be a foreshadowing of Jesus standing before his, in his day, the representation of the nations. When he stands before Pilate, and Pilate asks, what is truth? Jesus will respond. Daniel gets to be the precursor of that interaction as well, where Jesus gets to live out and be true. Father, thank you. Thank you for the story of Daniel. Lord, thank you for the example that he is even thousands of years later. A man of faithfulness, a man who takes serious the covenant that he has with you to the point of putting it all on the line, not just for himself and his companions, for all of the Magi and their families. He is willing to stake it all on your faithfulness that the fact that in the fact that you answer prayer in the fact that you are the revealer of mysteries he put it on the line and you showed yourself faithful we can see all of the others lord the enchanters and sorcerers and the other magi god they had no faith or hope that the deities that they trusted in would even care they gave up Thank you for the example of Daniel. Lord, I pray that for us, knowing even more than Daniel did at that time, knowing, Lord, the truth of the gospel, the understanding that you, God, would come in the flesh, that you would live the perfect life, that you would die in our place. Lord, the promise of resurrection, we know all of these things. Lord, I pray that we would act in a similar way, Lord, that we would take these things that trouble us, these things that, Lord, are heavy, things that we can't do, that we can't accomplish that are before us, God, we would bring them to you in prayer, that we would, in faith, because of who you are and what you've done, because of your track record, that we would, in full confidence, bring our worries, our troubles, our relationship uh, with others, God, that we would bring all of those things to you, knowing that you not only care, but you are the worker of miracles and you are the revealer of mysteries. Lord, I pray that we would not have less faith than Daniel, but even more, knowing what the gospel is, knowing that there is truth and hope, Lord, in your son. Lord, I pray that we would act appropriately, that we would pray big prayers that we would confidently walk, Lord, and that our neighbors would see by how we live and how we talk, how we walk out, that we have the mighty king of heaven, the mighty creator as our God, Lord, that you might be made much of in this world. And I pray that it would start in our homes and our families our interaction with others. We pray that you, God, would be made much of. We pray these things in the powerful and the amazing name of Jesus Christ. Amen.